Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is scandalizing. This is wondrous. This is the incarnation. The Almighty Creator God became a child, came into His creation through the womb of an illiterate teenage Jewish girl, first as a cell, and then as a zygote, and then was ultimately born into the arms of His mother Mary, like each one of us was born, first out and cold and crying, and then rooting, and then finally cuddling and cooing. You know, some of us are, you know, many of us, many, many of our friends and neighbors are just too scandalized by this audacious claim to even sort of take it seriously. Others of us, we, we trust and we wonder at this mystery, but in the end, we're probably not scandalized enough. 1,600 years ago, Augustine penned these words of scandal and of wonder. He said, the word who is God before all time became flesh at the appointed time. The maker of the Son was made under the sun. He who fills the world lays in a manger and swaddled in rags, but he clothes us in immortality. He who could find no room in the inn makes a temple for himself in the hearts of believers. Let us therefore wonder at his birth. So this morning, let's just wonder with Augustine and with billions today and throughout history who have wondered at this, this scandalizing claim of the Incarnation. I want to look in particular at, at kind of a fourfold scandal of the Incarnation. Four ways the Incarnation kind of scandalizes us, but ultimately invites us to wonder. And the first scandal is the scandal of the Logos, or the Logos. John begins his gospel by basically by flipping like 2,000 years of philosophy on its head. Now, I'm going to be very careful here because we have a philosopher in the room. Um, but before Christ, before John penned these words, the Word became flesh, the word he's using there is logos, logos. And this is a word that had a lot of Greek philosophical baggage behind it, underpinning it. So the first hearers of this word would have heard it in a very distinct way. It kind of meant this sort of um, divine rationality that ordered the created world. So everything John kind of goes on to say about the logos would have been basically met with an agreement and a shrug. So the logos was God. Okay, yeah. The Logos was with God, yeah, definitely. Everything was made and ordered through the Logos, okay, yeah, I'm tracking John, I'm tracking. But then ultimately the dynamite of John 1.14 blasts the categories wide open. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. That is not something they would have expected. In biblical critical theory, which I'm drawing on a lot in this sermon, Christopher Watkins says that this inverses the way humanity had for 2,000 years and still often does today, thinks about knowledge and the way knowledge works. Here's what I mean. Compare John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, with Plato's ancient allegory of the cave. You did learn this in high school, or you will learn this in high school, but as a refresher, in Plato, there's, there's a prisoner who's chained in a cave, and they break free, and they escape to look out upon the real world in the direct sunlight, 
And then they come back down and tell the prisoners in the cave what it's like. Previously, they had only seen shadows of what was out there, but this, this person ascends the heights of knowledge and learns the truth and comes down and shares it with his fellow prisoners. And this is how exactly how most of us think about knowledge in the world. A religious sage, a pastor, a professor, a, an expert ascends the heights and gains knowledge and then shares it with humankind. So basically, the human quest for knowledge is a scramble upwards. But John says that the logos, the light, the life, the truth became flesh. The light shines in the darkness. So in John's way of thinking, we don't scramble up for enlightenment. Enlightenment comes down to us. It condescends. It comes down then with this invitation in John 1.12 to become children of God. So here we have the, the U-shaped epistemology, fancy word for like how we know things, um, of the Gospel of John. Can you go to the other one for a minute? Maybe it was already up. Here's Plato. The prisoner breaks free, ascends to the heights of knowledge, and then comes back down to share. And then now to John 1 again. This is the way knowledge works in the Gospel. Now this is scandalizing for us because it really challenges our sense of self-importance and of achievement and of earning. We, uh, we build babbles, don't we? We always have a tower to the heavens. I mean, Qatar just spent billions and billions of dollars building a beautiful modern city where just eight years ago there was a desert. That's super impressive. Yet in the Bible's paradigm, Babel never ends well at all. You know, David says to God, God, I'm going to build you a house. And what does God say to David? No, I'm going to build you a house. Abraham, he says to Abraham, I'm going to provide you the lamb. And here's John 1 saying to a world full of these bright and bustling cities and universities and experts, the true light of Jesus is shining into your darkness, into your ignorance, into your sin. You don't need to earn him. You don't need to scramble up to get it. He's coming down to you. And the Greeks, along with much of the world, are scandalized by this. It's foolishness, isn't it? But the incarnation invites you and I to consider that you can't actually scramble out of the cave. You, you cannot learn enough. You cannot uh, earn enough. You can't build enough. You can't accomplish enough to, to bask in the true light of God's glory and his grace and his truth. And that is really good news, actually. You don't have to. It is a gift freely given to you in Christ. He comes to you, not you to him. That's the Logos. The second scandal of the Incarnation is historical. You know, the Bible is one of the very few religious books whose emphasis doesn't lie in ideas, although there's many of them. Or, you know, there's, there's a lot of great teaching and ideas, but the emphasis is on actually historical narrative, events that really happened, a narrative set in human history. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And ever since that statement has been made, our calendars have been cleaved in two. Have they not? There was a moment before this was true, and now there's a moment after this is true. There was a particular time on a particular day in history where this came about, and nothing has been the same since. So, in the Star Wars universe, it's true. The virgin birth, the incarnation, all of it. Some of you, some of you don't like the, the newer movies. I, I actually do like them, with apologies. But it is. It's, that's the claim of the gospel. It's actually true. All of it. That's the claim. Sociologists from Baylor University, they spent some time studying America's different views of God. And they found four common views in particular. 23% of the country saw God as primarily benevolent and forgiving, like, like most of us probably do or try to. 
The remainder, 77%, were divided into three camps. 16% saw God as predominantly critical. 31% saw God as primarily authoritarian. And then 24% saw God as predominantly distant. You know, a kind of cosmic force that, that launched the world and then left it spinning on its own, like a clockmaker, winds up a clock. But the incarnation, if accepted as historically true, it, it burst the bubble on all three of these. If God is critical, for example, why would he choose a backwater, illiterate, uneducated, impoverished teenage girl to bear him? If God is authoritarian, why would he be born a baby? Mild he lays his glory by. He puts down his power. But the incarnation especially bursts the bubble on God as distant. If God was born into history, it means at least two things. It means history isn't random. It isn't cyclical. It isn't arbitrary. It means history is meaningful. It's going somewhere. But more than that, it means that God is close because he cares. This has been an emphasis throughout Advent for us. John writes in verse 9 and following that God came into a world that he made and he was rejected. People didn't receive him. But to those who did receive him, what happens, John says, God becomes like our mother or like our father, like our parent, giving birth to those who welcome him. New birth. They, he makes us his children. So why doesn't he stop suffering now? Ah, oh, I don't know. But I know he cares. His enfleshment means his enmeshment with our suffering. His enfleshment means his enmeshment with our suffering. Jesus wept. Those two comforting words. He made our suffering his suffering, not in some kind of analogous or, or vague way, but by being born into human history on an actual date, in an actual place, to human parents. And why? Precisely, John says, that he could make us his children. In his article that I recently read, um, David, David Brooks, who writes in the New York Times, I follow him a lot, he wrote an article last year, Why do you, wh uh, What Do You Say to the Sufferer? That was the name of the article. And he was quoting Rabbi Elliot Kukla, who, who once described a, a woman who had a, a bad brain injury, and she would often fall to the floor and, and seize. And this woman talked to the rabbi about how when that happened, people would always rush around her and immediately try to lift her back up to her feet right away, and it really frustrated her. That's not what she needed. The woman said, she said, I think people rush to help me, they, to rush to help me up because they're so uncomfortable seeing an adult laying on the floor. But what I really need is for someone to get down on the ground with me, just to get down on the ground with me and hold me. You know, he will, he will eventually pick us up. And I pray, and we pray every Sunday, hasten the day, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, please. But for now, we at least have this comfort, which we've been saying throughout, uh, throughout Advent, God got down on the ground with us and held us. This is what God has done for us in the incarnation in Christ. The incarnation in history means God is not distant. He's family. Will you receive him again this Christmas or for the first time? When we receive him, our life becomes like the calendar, cleaved in two, B.C. and A.D. A third way that the incarnation scandalizes moderns is that it is particular and it is personal. God did not become human in a general sense. He became a first century Palestinian Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth. And when the logos of Greek philosophy became flesh, it went from being this impersonal philosophical idea about the mind of God to a personal present reality, Jesus. And this means for us that true religion, it isn't just a set of ideas. It isn't just adherence to a, a code of ethics or a way of being. 
or even a profound mystical experience. Rather, it is to trust that the one true God of the universe has actually revealed himself in Christ Jesus and is present with us. And this is a tough pill to swallow for moderns like us, admittedly. We tend to think we can and should have a kind of, a kind of view from, from everywhere, you know, on religious matters, meaning a view from everywhere is sort of an attempt to look upon the world with a kind of complete, multicultural, non-biased, God's-eye view of reality. Such attempts are... They're, they often come from a place of charity in our hearts, right? We, we, we want to be kind to our neighbors and friends who disagree with us about who Jesus is. And so we sort of, you know, we toss aside these meaty truth claims, and instead we, we go for this undifferentiated porridge, you know, an impossibly bland mix of, of self-contradictory universalism. You know, they're all basically right. The only, the only right belief is that no one is really right or wrong. In Jesus, the true light has come into the world. That is the Christian claim. And it is scandalizing. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this does give us a view from somewhere. First century Palestine, to be precise. It is a view that values all people and places and cultures without reducing them to porridge. It's authentic enough to admit we have a view from somewhere while also generous enough to respect others' views by challenging them. In other words, the incarnation... In the Incarnation, God in Christ indeed, indeed does ask for your allegiance to a particular view of the world, to a particular person, and that can be a hard thing to accept. But again, the invitation is, will you receive him? Not some ideas about him, not a code of ethics, not a mystical experience, but Jesus. Will you receive him this Christmas? And lastly, the last scandal of the Incarnation is the scandal of the material. God's enfleshment means an emphatic endorsement of matter, that matter matters. One scholar drives the scandal home, I think by, yeah, he drives the scandal home by translating John 1.14 this way, noting that the Greek word sarx, which is flesh, contains the word meat within its semantic range. The word became meat, he says. And that's scandalizing. It helps us to hear the kind of raw reality of the incarnation. The word became flesh. Tertullian put it this way, Christ came in the body, died in the body, ascended into heaven in the body, and now from heaven feeds his body, the church, with his body and blood through the Spirit. In other words, the incarnation tells us that our bodies are not ornamental extras. They matter. They're us. This scandalizes us because we're prejudiced towards excarnation, the immaterial. You know, for all of our obsession over things, it's still the brand an immaterial concept that we pay the most for. Uh, Zuckerberg's meta would have us all live and work and play in the excarnate metaverse, suggesting that the body is sort of like a handbrake on human ambition. The body is the problem. The body is a dirty ore, says Watkins, from which the pure metal of the spirit must be smelted. <laughs> so while we exert ourselves to grow beyond our humanity, God becomes human, endorsing our humanity. God took on flesh. This dignifies the material, our body, our humanity, and our world. It means a feast at a friend's table with steak and bread is genuinely, objectively better than a digital picnic in the metaverse. And it also means that what the metaverse is after, which is a kind of universal community of connection and creation and the like, well, that's exactly what's on offer in Christ. But it doesn't take 
excarnation to get there. It takes the incarnation to get there. It takes God redeeming all things. Heaven on earth. The divine freedom of heaven joined to the glorious material of, of trees and waterfalls and churches and this glorious creation. That's the Christian hope. The redemption of this material world. Your body is good. That's the fourfold scandal of the incarnation. And it is scandalous and it is wondrous. And that's basically the invitation this morning, is to behold the mystery, to wonder at it, and to adore it. I love the words of a little town of Bethlehem. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, O Lord Emmanuel. That's our prayer, Father, that you would indeed go from the realm of ideas today for us and come to abide in us, that by your Spirit each of us would, would receive you afresh, would be comforted by these truths. Gosh, through Advent we've, we've talked about the brokenness of the world and how we're so desperate for you. I pray that by your Spirit you would deeply comfort us, that you would speak these truths to us in our hearts, that you are close, that you're close. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.